Welcome to episode 94 of Paper Talk, a series of podcast interviews featuring artists and professionals who are working in the fields of hand paper making and paper art. I'm Helen Hebert, and I run Helen Hebert Studio, a hand paper making studio in Colorado's Rocky Mountains, where I create artist books and installations. I also host the annual Redcliffe Paper Retreat and paper making masterclasses here in the studio. And I run a membership program called The Paper Year and teach online classes about paper, light, and books, too. Find out more at HelenHebertStudio.com. Tom Balbo has spent most of his life in and around Cleveland, Ohio. His earliest work was primarily in ceramics and printmaking. As his interest in papermaking grew, his work turned towards expressing his artistic creativity in this area. Over the past 40 years, Balbo's work has been exhibited and shown in a large number of shows and galleries, and he has garnered numerous awards and critical attention for his artwork. In 2008, Balbo founded the Morgan Art of Paper Conservatory and Educational Foundation in Cleveland, Ohio, along with other local artists. He continues to work in paper, printmaking, and ceramics, and divides his time between creating in his studio and as the artistic director at the Morgan Conservatory. Enjoy our conversation. Well, Tom Balbo, welcome to Paper Talk. It's it's great. (laughs) It's great to see you, and um, I'm looking forward to hearing about your journey with paper. uh, Because I don't really know about your beginnings. So um, tell me a little bit about your uh, where you grew up and um, how how you got to paper, how you found it. Yeah, it's kind of an odd odd way. I mean, I went to uh, 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 high school and uh, was really went to college for track. I was recruited to pole vault oh. at, a, at a small university, Baldwin Wallace University, and uh, outside of Cleveland. And I was. Um, uh, a philosophy major, then an English major, then a history. And it wasn't until my junior year that I actually decided on doing art as a uh, major. Uh-huh. So art was was kind of the farthest thing from my mind. Uh, as a uh, late quarter, when they had quarters in college, uh, I did a quarter with a buddy from the soccer team I was on, and uh, he convinced me to try doing ceramics. So I started as a potter. And it was not a super, like I was a super skilled potter or anything like that. And I did work study that summer and was working in the ceramic area. So I started doing more and more. And uh, from then I uh, took some art history class and uh, uh, worked in the ceramic area, but art history and as a junior, and it just made a lot of sense. Art, all of a sudden, everything made sense to me. So mm. like a lot of things in my life are unexpected that i and happen. And so, you know, not looking for it, it became the thing. So, so I did printmaking and photography work in uh, undergrad. And mm-hmm. then I uh, got a fellowship to Syracuse University um, for ceramics and printmaking. And there, Don Cortese, uh, who was a print uh, instructor there, got a few grad students into the School of Forestry at Syracuse. Uh, and they gave us a whole little area and a, I assume it was, I'm pretty sure it was a valley, small valley test beater. We built our own presses and equipment and I don't even know where molds and decals came from. And we had some of that. And then yeah. I, I worked um, both. That was both my first two years that started in the first actual um, semester uh, at Syracuse and started doing um, large flat works, laying out things just on blankets on the floor and that became my thesis project, actually. Um, my ceramic instructor wasn't thrilled about it, but, um, you know, I had about four or five different studios at Syracuse. <laughs> oh, I was my gosh, wait, I want to ask a question. Um, so why, why ceramics and printmaking? Like, what do you think it was about those two things? I, I guess I only took printmaking because it was, you know, one of the electives to take with the art, you know, I had uh-huh. no idea. And um, it just was something I really enjoyed doing. It was mostly etching with photo etching and some okay. other things, drive okay. point, all that. Uh, and then 
within that, then uh, the print teacher was offering photography and I was doing photography and, and also doing photos to, to then, you know, use in etching plates. Um, I don't know what the correlation is other than everything has a lot of process. <laughs> you know? Right, right. Uh, state changes and things like that were, you know, different from like painting, which is a lot more immediate. You see what right. you get. Right. And, and you mentioned that um, it was the forestry department where right. there was paper making. Was there any, was there any sense to that? Like fiber related or alternatives but, to wood or what? That was odd. I mean, it was a full paper mill. Like, a, you know, their Hollander was probably a, 30 or 40 foot by 20 foot Hollander with a big roll. And that, you know, they, they did all the science uh, oh, okay. They had okay. in this facility and it's on the campus of, uh, of Syracuse. So I, uh, oh, so, so some, the art department was just using what was already yeah, there. Got yeah. it. Got it. Okay. So that's uh, and then that became another thing where obviously, you know, it's a lot of process. It's from state changes from soft to hard, that kind of thing. And, yeah. uh, um, you know, you're always getting a little different look when it's dry, uh, no matter what it is. So, uh, and who, who uh, how did you get to Syracuse? I know you got the fellowship, but. I, I had applied because of their ceramic program. Mm -hmm. I, wanted, I applied East and I was actually ready to go to UCLA. Um, mm -hmm. I had a. Uh, my father was in LA, so I had a driver's license already and could have gone out there for grad school. Um, and then I applied to Davis as well in ceramics, but um, Syracuse offered me the, you know, yeah. mm -hmm. that's one of the reasons. And that made Cleveland seem better in the terms of the winter snow because Syracuse is worse. <laughs> so. Right. But anyway, uh, but I mean, it was a, it was a great two years and uh, I had, uh, worked with Margie Hudo in the ceramic department. So they had a bunch of the abstract expressionists coming through um, that program ah. at that 78. And uh, so there was a big old warehouse building. We did a lot of slab work in there. And then I had my ceramic studio. I had a small area in the print shop and then the paper studio uh, to work out of. So it was very nice. So Wow. Wow. Okay. And then what happened after you got your master's. Uh, I, I knew I was going to, I had already done a lot of craft shows and I was starting to sell both prints and ceramics at a number of craft shows. And I, that was kind of my next venue was to, to do some of the bigger craft shows around in Florida and in uh, Ohio and other places. So I started, you know, doing the old setup, you know, this is before pop-up tents were everywhere, you know, <laughs> right. But I did, you know, homosote boards and set up prints and then had pots and sold them at a variety of things. Um, and I knew I, I had studio space back in Cleveland. I had a lot of tools already, I had especially clay tools and some. Uh, and then I bought a, my first beater when I got back to Cleveland was a uh, Howard Clark uh, oh, okay. beater. And I did a lot of cut up fabric and did a lot of casting at that point. Uh, primarily casting, not so much sheet forming, a little bit. Uh, and then eventually moved, um, got an arena, by, I think one of his first beaters uh, that he put out in around 83. And uh, so I worked in that studio for quite a while. And I had my uh, ceramic studio across the street in another building and had a gallery there, a studio gallery. So uh, started, you know, doing that. But as in the first few years, my work got out of scale, especially the paperwork and things like that. I was doing large work and trying to do them at craft shows. is just, you know, mm. it, it got, you know, trying to pack up a van and do all this stuff. Uh, and through that process, I, I was contacting more and more galleries across the country and getting work shown that way. So ultimately I pretty much stopped doing the shows in about three years and started showing through galleries across the country. So at one point, I had about 20 galleries, and I was consigning work, um, shipping, crating, crating uh, wow. it out, um, large paperworks primarily, um, sometimes ceramics, but it was primarily the cast paperworks. So. Right. And uh, tell me a little bit about the process of making those cast paperworks. Yeah, so I, I started uh, initially with clay slabs, casting in plaster, and then using those plaster castings to 
lay in the fiber and press it out sponge-wise, felt-wise, that type of thing, all hands-on. Uh, I slowly moved into casting over um, using a large marble sheet or marble table and laying both uh, bisqueware as well as um, uh, got away from plaster, but using bisqueware, plastics, marbles, uh, marble, lots of cutoffs and started making, you know, the, what would become the matrix for that casting. So everything tall was, you know, in size. So there were reliefs basically. And I did that all by, you know, cutting up fabric, beating it, adding some pigment to different uh, things, using the color of the fabric as well. Uh, laying that on this large marble table over the stuff and then putting a blanket over that <laughs> and using uh, windshield wipers to get most of the water off and then sponging for hours. And uh, Wait, what do you mean windshield wipers? Yeah, I use windshield wipers on, on top of the felt. It's one of my only inventions in life is to... Used windshield wipers are great for cleaning up tables and, oh, and okay. felt down and you can get some water off with slight pressure as you like. Uh, and, you know, if you don't have a vacuum system, which, you know, at the first point I didn't have, and then I slowly moved into, you know, putting plastic around and putting a shop back on something. I had tables built with holes and, uh -huh. you know, and vacuum pump system. And then ultimately I got out to, uh, I did a, a workshop out in uh, Sonoma State and met the guy that was a sculptor that was also a facility manager who built this a wonderful vacuum system for them at Sonoma uh, State. Uh -huh. So that even advanced my kind of the amount of pressure I could get out of, uh, you know, a table that sucked the water down and the vacuum, which I'm still using pretty much today. Uh, a carbon vein, uh, what they call an airless compressor, uh, to and it saves so much energy and time uh, with the casting uh, thing. So, right, um, wow. It, so, what sizes uh, are you working in today? You're still doing paper casting. I'm still doing some, not anywhere mm -hmm. near as. I've right. taught a lot of classes, you know, at the Morgan and some other places mm -hmm. in Canada. Uh, I've moved kind of into doing more. Uh, painterly flat work, stenciled work with um, larger pulp and combining pulps and things like that lately. But um, I mean, I, I will work up to uh, normally to four to six foot, four by six foot castings, that kind of thing. I have the capability of doing 10 by five foot castings. I have a, a couple tables that are larger, which I haven't used in a while because I have some of those castings in my studio, I've sold some and still have some, but they're very, like, you know, when you start to accumulate work <laughs> after years, where do you put the stuff? And you yeah. know, if there's a mission, if somebody wanted a large casting, I would then do it. But uh, um, right. being at the Morgan, it seems like I've moved more and more into uh, uh, sheet forming and flat work. So. Right. Right. Well, I want to get to the Morgan, but let's sort of, uh, I want to hear how, so you had 20 galleries around the country. That's impressive. Yeah. And um, how, um, how did, are you still showing with galleries or how has that? that only only two left. Okay. Yeah. Part of it was obviously we don't want to talk about the Morgan, but when I started doing the Morgan 15 years, 16 years yeah. ago, it took a lot of energy yeah. and, you know, and there was a point to dealing, you know, you deal with galleries, some are really good to deal with, some are not, some pay, some you got to fight tooth right. and nail to get from. And then it's, you know, some some of my better galleries, the folks were um, paying or the people running the galleries or, you know, moving, retiring out of the galleries and changing over and things like that. So, you know, and then I've lost the energy to go pursue more and more, you know, um, and I- right. I mean, I started doing that with, you know, when I got out of grad school, showing slides, you know, the old little slides, yeah. you know, gallery after gallery, rejection after rejection, getting some and then finding people and, you know, but uh, so, yeah. but it kept, kept me, it kept me going and I did a lot of commission work and uh, between both of those things, uh, I was able to afford equipment. I bought equipment as I went. I didn't, uh, I actually put anything on uh, layaway or anything like that. It was uh, when I could afford it, I got it. 
or right. look, used equipment. And so, um, right. And you mentioned you, you think always also being sorry. Go ahead. Um, you mentioned um, you had two spaces right after grad school. And so space has always been something. I know you have a one whole building that at least now and you got the Morgan. So talk a little bit about space in Cleveland. Yeah. <laughs> it started, I've always been a tool person. And uh -huh. even before I, um, I was a, antique wood finisher back in high school. It was my first oh. job. And I, I ended up running the, the little shop. Uh, and then I set up my own shop before I went into college. I had my own refinishing business, restoration. I would could make parts for chairs on a lathe and oh. knew all, of, um, not all about, but I knew a lot of re restoration work and uh, kept that going even through college, but slowly moved pots into my, uh, refinishing studio and then you know everything kind of switched over and I got done with that but I was collecting tools so I had a lot of wood tools at that point that I'd left behind I took I had already collected a wheel and other things to take to grad school so even when I left Syracuse I had a U-Haul uh, small truck to bring stuff back uh, and then I just uh, you know I had a decent two storefront and I built a small area back up that into a uh, the ceramic kiln and an area mm -hmm. to work because I was working in the basement of that storefront and the, and then where I lived across the street with friends they allowed me to take over part of the basement space there so I expanded uh, and that was a wonderful studio in the sense that it was a big boiler so in the winter things would dry really well <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> heat and it, it had windows, you know, small windows and things like that. So um, I didn't find this studio until 88, 1988. I found this space where, which you've been to, I believe. And, mm -hmm. uh, and I got into one floor and then slowly mushroomed into two floors. And now I have about roughly 25,000 square feet of space out of that. And then I, I can work at the Morgan and do things there yeah. as well. Of uh, either way, as you know, as now as emeritus status, but even beforehand, um, and a lot of equipment because I had redundant equipment at some point. You know, the Morgan right. has a lot of equipment now um, that we're sharing, and uh, and over the course of time, I bought. You know, when they became available, like Tim Barrett sold Segetas or recommended buying Segetas from. Um, oh, She's out in California, but she was, she wrote one of the first books before. Suki, I Suki Hughes. Yeah. Bought a couple of those molds uh, together. Yeah. And then as I afforded, I, I, I bought one of Tim Moore's when I first started, like a, which I just starting to use a lot of is a 25 by 32 that he made a wove mold for me years ago. Oh. And, and, and slowly I bought some things, you know, through the paper and book intensive when they became available. And the more I saw book things, I bought, you know, equipment. So I've always been, had a tool fetish. Yeah. And, and then space, space is now even an issue for me because um, the studio. <laughs> <laughs> 25,000 square feet isn't enough. Okay. Uh, <laughs> um, <I> little, <laughs> yeah. But it's been great to have the space, you know, oh, yeah. go up. and then I also have living spaces on all those floors, which is nice. So I've, people can come in and stay and work and do that kind of stuff. So, Yeah. Yeah. It's a fantastic space. And there are some images on your website, which we'll uh, post uh, the link okay. to in the show notes. So um, tell me how you got in, you know, because you started pretty early when papermaking was fledgling. Yeah. How right. did you, who were the first people you met and how did you get into the papermaking world? Yeah, I, I hadn't met too many people. The first was really Tim Barrett, which he was driving through Syracuse and and he oh. did a demo with his uh, Japanese uh, paper making equipment. Mm -hmm. He also get us to sell. And I thought being the tool person, I, you know, I really didn't have a long conversations with him as well, you know, like just met. and But I did buy one of those and literally had it for probably 15 years before I even used it. But mm -hmm. 
two little um, bamboo uh, sous, you know, and it was the first, and he would have been the first person. And then I think it was um, in 87, I was became a friend of Dart Hunter. Um, oh, uh, in Ohio? You kind of yeah. met him because... Mm-hmm. Well, there uh, as well. And then through hand paper making, uh, somehow I met uh, Amanda uh, Degner, or, or, you know, I started getting involved in ordering that. And then in the around 87, and I think is when I met Bill Drendel at um, a combined uh, meeting of IATMA and DARD at uh, Vegas. Oh. And, my partner at the time, you know, was willing to go out there and we were gambling. And then I was going to some of the meetings. <laughs> I didn't know what was going on, you know, and then, I, you know, I, I, I would sit at some of the talks and there was a science part of the dark, you know, and all that stuff going on. And I was still, you know, basically wasn't aware of the, the overall bigger paper community, except for, you know, I, I knew of the Clarks now, you know, getting equipment of David Reyna. And, and then I bought a lot of things from uh, uh, Lee McDonald as well. So we became uh, friends. Sorry about right. that. That's okay. You know, in the mid to later eighties, um, you know, I was, that's the only kind of, you know, I didn't really have a, a really good sense of um, like sheet forming. I mean, I, w- I could form sheets and, you know, be even, but it was primarily cotton uh, that I was using. I was using some abaca fiber and stuff at that point. Uh, and then I think that Bill got me to uh, go to, it was either 93 or 94 to the first paper and book intensive where um, Mina Takahashi was actually my first kind of, she taught, I was in her Japanese class and then I took Richard Flavin's uh, I think woodblock class and somebody else's yeah. stuff. I started to get to know those folks and right. you know, and so I continue to go to uh, most of the PBIs after that and and that's been, go ahead. No, yeah, I just want to mention for people that don't know the paper and book intensive, it's an amazing like two week summer camp for professionals, um, and it's wonderful. Uh, paper making, book making, and print making. And right. I, I meant to ask you before, but so when you were casting your big pieces, that was just pulp. You weren't forming sheets and casting. You were just casting pulp. Primarily, I yeah. would do a sheet. I had the tools and, and I would do some sheet, but it was right. only for mostly for a lot of uh, overlays of different colored pulps. Okay. That, you know, I still have a lot of those pieces that were kind of the first, but I probably didn't make more than a hundred sheets of uh, paper in the first five, six years of flat right, um, right. sheet. Uh, right, right. Okay. And so, um, so tell me about the inception of the Morgan Conservatory, which is an amazing facility in Cleveland. Yeah. Everyone needs to go there, but how did that, how did well, the idea start and yeah, it was, again, it was this kind of thing. I had just taught a, a paper and book intensive class in Indiana where I had um, literally I had to teach uh, a lot of different fibers and sheet forming. And that sort of got me into a little bit more of the production of that and understanding. Uh, I then went back and I was at the time I was a good friend of Mr. Morgan's. I had met Mr. Morgan in the early 90s and we were friends he lived across the street from where I lived and um, we did some trips together with my partner and him and uh, uh, traveled and uh, and then all, over the course of time Mr. Morgan needed a little bit more help here and there and uh, uh, Mr. Morgan would have been about 40 years older than me so he died uh, uh, at 98 and a half years old so oh um, wow but I ended up slowly over the course of time helping him out with little things or helping him drive somewhere or do something like that. And through the course of time, uh, uh, after 9-11 and that type, um, and then there was a blackout, I think, right after that, that hit us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he had some issues with things. So I was slowly becoming more of a caregiver for him or sort of helping him run things in his household. And so come the... Uh, uh, 2006, you know, he's he's got naming rights to a trust, um, 
but it has to be a 501c3. And uh, he said, uh-huh. if you could do something, you know, he named some of the, some of the trusts would go toward whatever I decided to make. So uh-huh. I then talked with Zygote Press and I talked with folks and I got everything kind of the wheels running. And then um, I had no idea how to, what a nonprofit was all about about how you run a nonprofit, <laughs> what it involved and all that. So I went in foolishly. Um, so we started, I started writing, you know, the, the stuff up. I hired some people out of uh, Indiana to help with the actual writing because I had no facility to write. And it had to be a specific type because of the amount of uh, restrictions on the, um, the money itself. Because uh, initially it was going to go to the clinic, Cleveland Clinic Health System and the University Hospital Health System. Uh, it was Mr. Morgan's partner. He there was his money that he had named for um, for five hundred one those five hundred one. So so I was sort of like, okay, I can do this. <laughs> so not realizing what it really. Um, so in 07, you know, we were still writing and doing stuff, but I found a building that was literally. I wanted. I know I wanted it to be near where my studio was. Mm-hmm. And then somehow walked in and discovered the, the Morgan. And it was a big open space. So I personally bought the building at that time. Uh, it was very affordable compared to prices anywhere else. People would be shocked at what <laughs> it costs for 15,000 square feet here. But it needed a lot of work and it still yeah. needs a lot. Of work. But, you know, um, so for a year, literally, um, we were lucky. I formed a board kind of in that June of 07 for the Morgan because uh, mm-hmm. I'm a board and we didn't know how long it was going to take for, to get our status, but luckily we got it um, uh, within that 07, like around August or uh, September of 07. So we were legitimate, which meant that we didn't have to go through any other institution if we were going to capture any of Mr. Morgan's um, naming rights to the trust. So so we got there, and then we actually had the first open house in 08, in October of 08. So we finally opened the building up. Mm-hmm. We had degreased the floors. We had thrown polyurethane on them because it was a machine shop at one point. Uh, yeah. So it was just, you know, the hills and valleys, so everything was patched. And, and then you had to seal it somehow because you'd never get rid of, you know, the oil over years seeping into the floor. So. Right. We did that. We had, and it was blew me away when the people came through the door of that open house because, mm. it, you know, I was stressed. It could be, you know, and then volunteering people came in before that, and the board was a working board, so everybody was on deck. Didn't know what to expect, and it was absolutely incredible. You know, the the turnout, and and then we just started one or two programs that you know. After that, and then the 09, we kind of got into a, a bigger um, bit of programming and slowly hired, you know, maybe one staff person. We still didn't have much funds at all until almost 2010. So uh, Mr. Morgan passed away August of 09. So, uh, but Mr. Morgan was able to make the first open house. And he, Aww. I was able to get him, he just had some issue, he had gone to the hospital. I was able to get him out of that hospital. He wheeled him in and uh, my brother-in-law, who's a bagpiper, bagpiped him in and, he, you know, it couldn't have been a, a better kind of uh, journey. And, yeah. Uh, somewhere in our archive, um, and I don't know if Amanda was here before the opening or after that, Amanda Degner, but she, we had, she was doing something and we had Mr. Morgan come in and we were working and there's a little video of him <laughs> pulling a sheet or two of paper. And uh-huh. stuff like that. So it's, 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 it's quite a, a, a unique little thing, but that was the story behind, you know, why I got involved. Um, okay. I certainly didn't have the means to do what we're doing at the Morgan, you know, financially, you know, I had the energy to kind of do stuff, but, you know, but I really didn't realize what an undertaking it was. And once you're in it, you're in it or, or you drop, you drop out totally, and I just kept it going, and a lot of help, a lot of people volunteering, and um, and in 07, we also got cuttings from Tim Barrett um, uh, from their Kozo garden. So there are two varieties of that. I ended up out of those cuttings. I think there were 18 trees that started, and then the garden grew from there. 
the Kozo field. So, and uh, right, wow, yeah. So I want to talk about that, but let's let's just talk about the overarching uh, all of the programs because it's amazing what the Morgan offers. Yeah, and I think I based it on uh, really on the paper and book intensive as kind of their overreaching. You know, there is always even conservation involved with new and old techniques of bookmaking and mm-hmm. printmaking and paper, you know, making from, you know, all kinds of things uh, from uh, lamp shade to, you know, casting to uh, pulling large hanji sheets, all that kind of stuff. So I designed it. I said I wanted a, a bindery that you have an area for that. I wanted letterpress printing. And I wanted to be able to do Eastern and Western style paper making and all the things in between uh, and at least try and keep that craft going or keep all these crafts alive. And in this region, you know, and it's mm-hmm. like where I am, I'm, my studio is too much to move. <laughs> I, can't, I can't move it to the Bay Area, you know, <laughs> right. it, and everything is easy and easy to get around here and affordable in Cleveland. So that was one of the other things about it. You know, you can have this bigger space to work out of, but those are really the reasons why it was set up that way, as well as with a gallery as a central kind of part of it. So, and uh, you know, over the course of time, we built the bindery was the first, other than the gallery walls that went up first for our opening and that, I think two years down the road, we built the, the bindery or, you know, had that installed within the space. We then beat the beater room or made, I'm sorry, we built the beater room uh, and made that, you know, somewhat of a soundproof room so that you can, and then we worked on uh, renovating the front offices and put an actual kitchen in instead of just having a stove and a sink, you know, near right. the paper. And then we redid the some of the restrooms over and things like that. So those have kind of, over the course of time, how the Morgans improved uh, and, uh, and hopefully we'll do more down the road. Hey listeners, let's take a little break here. And I want to let you know that my new book, The Art of Papercraft is now out in the world. The book offers a rich variety of projects that will delight crafters, artists, and designers alike, including paper votive lights, pop-up cards, folded paper gift boxes and envelopes, woven paper wall hangings, miniature one-sheet books, and much more. If you'd like an autographed copy, you can order that directly from me at HelenHebertStudio.com. And if the autograph doesn't matter to you, the book is available wherever fine books are sold. It's also available on Kindle. And by the way, my book, Paper Making with Garden Plants and Common Weeds, has also just been released on Kindle. And my other papermaking book, The Papermaker's Companion, has been available on Kindle for a couple of years. Now back to our conversation. Tell me about your exhibitions program, just the overview. The overview, I, I think we have somewhere around six ex- six exhibitions a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, you Normally from January through March, it's kind of uh, too chilly and stuff. We've had a few exhibitions, but... It's kind of, you're not going to get a lot of people in at the best time. So it's usually what I would call about a, 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 a nine-month or 10-month program or say mm-hmm. nine-month. And um, we try and show not everything paper-related, but book, paper, print. Mm-hmm. People have done, you know, have have done movies, you know, onto paper, all kinds. of. We're open in the gallery to any of that kind of stuff. When we do our jury show, which has now become kind of a constant, uh, our first show in March, end of March, is now a national jury show. And that has to feature, uh, I think, f- at least 50% paper or something like that. But it doesn't have to be handmade paper or anything of that nature. It just has to have fiber. But other than that, you know, I like work from all around, all over the board. Uh, and are those, um, do people propose exhibitions or are you curating or how does that work? All, all of the above. So we yeah. have lots of people who will propose. We ask for proposals. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, if, we, if we see what we've done this year, like if we've done too much print or we've done a lot of print, we may do a book, you know, right. try and focus at least the one or two shows with books. We also now um, have at least part of the gallery or the whole gallery 
at one point of the show is artisan residence program because we have a big artisan residence program now going. So that's also like one show. So we have a juried and usually artist residence right. about four more shows to curate every year. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had Tim Freisch did a, a show for us last February, not this February, but a year ago, February, uh, this Lake Erie show, um, Lake Ontario show with fiber and things like that. So he actually came in and put that show together in February. So that was an additional kind of ah, thing. Uh-huh. So we'll, we will offer the space occasionally to thank the people. And, uh, right, so. right. You mentioned the artist in residence program. Tell uh, me about that. Yeah, we've had resident artists. A lot of times we couldn't, I couldn't afford to, you know, pay them, but we could give them space, give them material to work with that kind of thing uh, in the first, I'd say seven, eight years. And we slowly got some funding, especially from Wingate. Um, so we increased the stipe. We were able to finally offer a little bit of a stipe and it's still not a full like right. stipe. We can't pay for your travel to come in and things like that. But um, but over the last few years, we've had up to um, as many as 18 artists and residents, I think four years before COVID. COVID kind of yeah. killed. We had quite a program going from, I think, 17 through 20. And then half the 20 artists, or most of them, you know, we put on hold, put right. on hold last year. A couple of those were able to come in, mostly national and regional. The ones internationally, we couldn't bring in. Uh, so those, some of those folks are coming in this year. So this year we have 14 artists in residence and it's all over the board, book, paper, print people, combinations of people. Um, we have uh, at least three people coming internationally, um, one from Spain and two from Chile. Mm-hmm. We had one from Australia, but couldn't, we had to, had to change. So that's not happening. So, so we have both regional people that are, or we should say local people, a few local, uh, national, and then international. And we, you know, we have an application form on the website now, and uh, we, we offer, you know, a certain amount, something like $300 a week to come in um, as part of the stipend. And uh, Wingate's been very generous. They doubled our amount this year. Oh, so, wonderful. Uh, how, so how do you deal with um, the residents um, using the equipment or knowing that they know how to? Or is, I'm just curious about that. Yeah, the resident artists. We usually make sure that they're they know how to operate. We you know we we will charge as part of their program. Depending, we'll give them initial insight. But if they need a lot of help, say paper making, because some people don't know paper making. Right. So um, normally we don't allow them to use the beaters at all, unless they you know they're a high skill. Like you would be able to use beaters. We we know you know the skill of it. Um, but we'll take them through at least and show them and have them help us you know, beat the fiber in letterpress, make sure that they know how to use a van der mm-hmm. or at least get them set up, make them take an initial kind of thing, how to operate any kind of equipment. So that's part of what we ask from the residents, but they have 24 seven access while they're here. Mm-hmm. Get a fob, they can come in and out at any time. Right. And uh, one of the things right now is, you know, we offer um, advice as where to house, you know, B&Bs or Airbnbs or, you know, rooms, things like that. Uh, and occasionally I've put up some of the artists in residence uh, mm-hmm. in my so. Right. Okay. And you also have um, internships? Oh, so the intern program is one of the things I'm, that the resident artists and intern program I'm real proud of. And mm-hmm. especially that started, even when we started, I had people helping before we even opened um, intern-wise. So they came through um, a few at a time from some of the schools around here. And, out, and then every year we've had more and more interns. We had, you know, program uh, way back, I think in 2010, we started even formalizing the intern program because we needed that help. We needed that volunteer help. Sure. And part of the Morgan, part of my intent was to have a space and Maggie Denk, who's our executive board uh, person who's head of printmaking at Cleveland Institute of Art, also wanted something where, where do kids go after they get out of 
uh, art school. You know, a right. lot of them don't realize that, oh, you need studio access. And, and that school doesn't give you access unless you sign up for a class or. Right. And so these and, and at the same time, lots of institutions were getting rid of equipment. A lot of letterpress equipment, a lot of printmaking things were going out, paper making uh, uh, facilities were leaving. Even the Institute of Art here had a great paper making program. And mm. we were the beneficiaries of a lot of that equipment um, right. uh, over the course of that time. Uh, and that's um, the interns come from a lot of different places now. We've got them from a lot of the Ohio colleges here, as well as we've had them from Maryland, from Rhode Island, from Savannah College of Art, and even California. So uh, if they can get here and, you know, we run a, a yeah, is it a specific program? Like, does everybody come for the same length, or do you start people at the same time, or is it like just well, individualized? The summer, um, uh -huh. we then started like for a ten-week program, and then we kind of slowly offered some fall for a few people that might want to do, you know, stuff cozo and weren't going to school or something like that. So that, you know, we had a winter, you know, program. Mm -hmm. And now as people come through, we'll, we'll design things for them. But we still offer, you know, the initial summer program is a 10-week program. And we now have <clears throat> four in the paper studio, two of which are full-time. Uh, they're two days a week only, but they're in the studio. Um, there's also two that are paper and outreach. So they're in the studio two days. And then I have two garden interns um, two days a week. And then I'll have a third one come from, uh, she's in the graduate program in Alabama and she's coming up for a month in July for garden. And we'll do natural fiber kind of stuff uh, with them. I'll do that with them as part of the program. So. Oh, cool. Okay. And then just tell me a little bit about your workshops, your workshop program. That's been going, you know, almost since the inception um, and more and more workshops. And we've, we've tried variations. I know when we first started, it was just a few local people here, myself and Fran Kovac and Chris Takis that were people locally that could teach different classes. And we slowly moved from doing, you know, a couple days a week, you know, at nighttime to doing weekend, you know, workshops. And then, but the program's been one of our uh, longest running programs and workshop programs. And now we offer, uh, we were up to almost, we were up to almost 35 uh, summer workshops and about 12 to 15 winter workshops that we mm -hmm. offer and uh, publish, you know, catalog, send them out and this and that. And then COVID hit and, you know, yeah. like else we went virtual for some of it and we're still doing some virtual now and, uh, and in-house and, uh, I think we have total with virtual about 24 workshops this year. Are you and, doing paper making uh, virtual? No. <laughs> okay. That, I was just wondering. <laughs> oh, Richards has done it. God love him. And I think Rod yeah. and Mike. Uh, yeah. Yeah. How years go, but years are kind of special. But um, I don't do paper making. Yeah. Oh, Mine don't are, you do others. Yeah. But yeah. you don't. And paper making just. Yeah, you have to get everybody on board with all the equipment, and yeah, yeah. We'll probably always offer some virtual now. Um, it's just the nature of the beast. And yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, and you've mentioned the garden a few times. I think it's the largest. Well, I, 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 I assume, but I mean, I, you know, I always like to think it's one of the largest. I don't ever want to, you know, be like, oh, we got the yeah. Now it's expanded. The stand of trees has expanded every year. And uh, it's probably a good, you know, if you want to call each little, you know, area, there's probably over 100, 150 trees. I don't know. Uh, but we were able to, uh, this last harvest, we were able to uh, uh, get about 80 to 90 dry pounds of black bark off the. Wow. The, uh, that's well, so a lot I, of, want, I want you to talk a little bit about because some people don't know much and I've never been to a fiber harvest. Um, so you said you got 18 plants from Tim Barrett way back when, and these right. are like a shrub and they grow fast. So I'm just curious about like, do you harvest everything every year or is it just certain? Yeah. The cycle. Yeah. So the initial cycle was Tim said to 
leave, they were just cuttings. There weren't even, okay. you know, and uh, so the first group came up and, you know, they came up maybe three, four feet, but Tim said to let them, you know, uh, let them just grow and, and flourish for the first three to four years. So we didn't have any harvest until about the fourth year. Um, but each year I did do more cuttings off the cuttings and expanded, you know, another, and right. we holes and, 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 and expand the garden at least so that, it, you know, and now, um, you know, we're harvesting pretty much everything, um, the whole field, even the small stuff. I, uh, Nick Cletus from, uh, who took over Tim's position and worked in Japan for six years, recommended this year he came to uh, Cleveland in the summer, last summer, and recommended that we cut even the smallest, uh, small, tiny little sap saplings down uh, each year. So we did that this year. For regrowth, yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. And you only really want, when you cut them down, you really only want about no more than about a two inch diameter. Um, so anywhere from a quarter inch to two inches are um, give you the best kind of, uh, uh, you know, white inner bark that you can get uh, for uh, scraping. So you then, we do it once a year, just like you would in uh, uh, Japan or you harvest you hope for a frost. So we try and do it mid November here. You don't always get the frost, but you harvest then you cut everything and then you start steaming. So depending on how your steamer is set up, we have an old stainless pot. I got from Tim Barrett out of Iowa that is about 32 high by I'd say diameter of good 40 inches. Mm-hmm. Some big pot. So we, so you're cutting your sticks to 32, 30 inches. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So standing usually, them up in there and steaming. Yeah. yeah. So we bought three, three sections of the taller, you know, say 10, 12 foot go into a, uh, you know, drop down. So you're not only cutting with the bot, but you're cutting in sections. And, and then we steam uh, during the harvest, you know, we're cutting, we're, um, we're, you know, and then cutting down and then we're uh, cutting off the tips that, because it gives you the tips are what, give you nothing but a lot of bumps at the end uh-huh. then steam that um, and then everyone's stripping so you have during our harvest we have people stripping which is you've never stripped kozo yourself yeah not too yeah. much but i have but it's it's a nice process from um from you know the steaming it's one of my favorite parts and my thumbs are <laughs> thumbnails are worn out by the end of it but yeah so this but, is peeling the, the inner bark after it's steamed, it's it's fresh and it's soft. And you do you make a little slit, and then you no, can you, no. to, you can kind of do it. It, it shrunk back it. enough, and and we've got we've we've trained people to get one full pull of, of uh, you know, so it's not in sec, you know just stripped down and lots of little sections. So that's part of our harvest. And then during the harvest, we also have scraping stations set up for people to scrape during the harvest. So we usually get, you know, normally you get anywhere from 20 to 30 some people over the course of a weekend to come in and primarily scrape and strip. And because uh, I have to start ahead of time to start getting some steams ready and going. Right. And, uh, and then we also, if we have time, we, we actually take people and let them make some sheets of paper as well. Oh, wow. And now we're trying to extend we get some people come back during the week and it usually takes two weekends, especially yeah. you know, the second weekend is like, I've been stripping all week and steaming with a buddy of mine. And, you know, we're, we're the only ones at the pot. You know? So three hours later, you're done with that strip. But, uh, but no, we've had great harvest and it looks like this is going to be a super year again with the uh, amount of rain we've had already. Um, and so, then do you, what do you do with that 90, did you say 90 pounds? Do you uh, use that internally or? We use it internally, especially what we've scraped, but we've sold the black bark now. Okay. We've probably already have sold um, 40 to 50 pounds of it. Um, and uh, on our website, we sell it. Uh, I know RISD was here this, they did a winter program with us in Iowa this year. And they bought, I think, 40 pounds. And then somebody bought another five or six. Okay. And we have a lot from other uh, 
harvest, you know, each year, which that w- this year we've really sold a lot of black bark. So mm-hmm. um, we still have a lot left from, you know, we've been doing it since 10, you know, not that we had a ton of it in 10, but we, you know, um, so right. it's, it's been good, but it's, for us to sell scrape, you know, we just can't. Uh, oh yeah. That's too much it, work. I mean, I think Amy Richards has it down the best as far as speed wise and her Coso variety in Florida is I think of the same type, but it grows bigger, thicker and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. harvested. And uh, she's got some reverse techniques that seem to work well for scraping. So thank you. So, but you know, but things yeah. are harder to find these days, you know, the, uh, uh, the Japanese Koso is harder to get through carriage house and uh, the Gopi is pretty much nowhere to be found. And uh, there is some Mitsumata, but even with the supply chain and everything else, it's been really more difficult, even with difficult right. for us. Yeah. Well, that's good to know. And uh, tell us what else you offer on your website for sale, because you sell a lot of paper. Yeah, we, we do a lot of uh, in-house paper production. Uh, mm-hmm from translucent sheets that are either, you know, non-pigmented or pigmented to abacus to blends of abaca cotton sheets and uh, flax sheets. We do uh, a mixture of Mitsumata, uh, Arcozo, Taikozo papers uh, and the Eastern tradition. So we try and sell all that. And we have some specific things like we call an engraver's paper where we'll do one side is all Pellon side and then it's dried, one side is dried in a box with a, like a semi-gloss uh, plastic uh, orange mm-hmm. lift from the old printmaking days. We use orange, what's called orange lift, which is, you know, semi-matte or, and that'll give you an even smoother kind of texture. So uh, we use that with an Abaca cotton mix. So a whole variety of papers through the um, online store, as well as if you come into Cleveland, you know, you can actually see and touch the paper. And our right. store, also, we, we have some uh, reference books, including your reference books um, that mm-hmm. you've written. And we have um, some other ones uh, for paper making. We have some graphic design texts, things like that. And we also have handmade books and uh, oh. marble, sheets of marble papers available from a variety of people. Um, and then some paste papers and things like that as well for book. And we offer a little bit of leather and, and some bindery tools and things like that that um, we stock from uh, Colophon or from Talus um, okay. in our store. Um, yeah, cool, cool. How many students do you think come through there in a year? Workshop well, students. Let's say for um, students for workshops, I'd say there's two to 300 through mm-hmm. the year. Mm-hmm. We also do a lot of outreach programs with kids themselves. So we have, whether they'll, you know, do a day or bring a class, you know, class of 30, 50 kids, we've had as many, or, or we go out to the classes and do, you know, set up and that type of thing. We've been doing that over the course of time. So that's probably another 500 to a thousand kids in the Cleveland school system or the surrounding areas, you know, that, uh, and, and we try and do more and more um, focus on that as well to try and, you know, it's kind of the, the newest way to get funding is not the newest way, but it's one of those important ways to continue funding. Um, right. You know, my generation is, uh, you know, they're great with workshops, but, you know, down the road, you know, if we don't get a younger generation in here to follow through, you know, we're, we're dinosaurs in a, you know, in a place. So. Yeah. What, what's the staff like? How many staff people do you have now? We have about um, seven on staff uh, mm-hmm. right now, besides myself. And I've kind of moved from the artistic director to emeritus status. But I'm, I have to also, you know, go through all the inventory with people and identify what belongs to who, but also talk about the history of it. And then also talk about the maintenance of the equipment through the print area, the bindery to the paper art lab and, um, and the garden. So my next year is a set of tasks is one of the tasks. I will still be working um, as a uh, uh, 
the main advisor for artisan residents, which is something I want. And, and then I'll incorporate interns into what I can do as well with that. So we have an intern um, and volunteer coordinator. We have a, a outreach coordinator, who's also our uh, full-time paper in charge of the studios and paper maker. We have a program person that's full-time that just came in. We also have a, now you have to have a social media person, you know, that mm, does mm-hmm. you know, writing for things and social media. So we have that. And then we also have a develop, full-time development person that's um, doing a great job learning on, on the go. And then we have an executive director as well. And, and then we also have a, a store manager as well as she's also the gallery manager. And I think she's more like a 20 hour a week kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So, and then we also have um, two um, part-time interns that are paid, what I'd call a paid internship, okay. not, not money, but some money uh, uh-huh. and part. So, so we're actually closer to probably 10 in total staff. Who does the fundraising? Is that the executive director or your board or? Well, the board is supposed to um, primarily uh-huh. they're, they're in charge as well as the development people. So for mm-hmm. fundraisers, it's kind of uh, on the, on the board's responsibility. And they, over the years, if we, I've worked with them and volunteers have worked, some staff have worked, we have to coordinate staff, but it's been the board's responsibility. And we've till COVID we had, um, the last three years before COVID, we had both a, a big a, a dinner event out in the garden in July. Mm. That slowly became our major fundraiser. And then much more of a lower cost open house kind of thing for our normal October benefit, which is a little more hands-on, things like that. Mm-hmm. So we switched and then to 2020, you know, it shut the, everything down and, um, we, the only thing we did, I had a my only first man show here was in September of last year. And that function is kind of our first kind of back COVID kind of benefit. We didn't sell drinks like we normally do. We just offered beer and wine and beverages and, and some hors d'oeuvres, finger food. And then I gave a higher percentage to the gallery for, or to the Morgan for sales and um, and took the gallery, but we had about 200 some people come through. So that was, a, it felt like we were somewhat back, you know, yeah. <laughs> and this goodness. year not able to do, we did a nice open house about uh, a month ago, mm-hmm. all hands-on during the day kind of thing and uh, marbling, paper making, book printing, uh, that kind of thing. This year we're not able to, um, to do a benefit. So I'm not sure what we're doing, you know, as far as, uh, you know. But, but you're also pretty successful in terms of getting grant money as well. Yeah. We've been getting more and more grants and writing mm-hmm. more. We just, we just got a small NEA grant for 15,000 nice. for, um, for an outreach program with an, uh, uh, inner, uh, a neighborhood thing that's involved in the inner city uh, doing work with them. And, you know, the, we have Cleveland Foundation, which is a wonderful, one of the oldest foundations in the country. They're right next door, practically, and they've helped us. And we have Cuyahoga County Arts, which gives us money, and then Ohio Arts Council, and then other types of match fundings here and there, you know, mm-hmm. so. Mm-hmm. But it's a tough game. I mean, the, the funding for nonprofits and, yeah. you know, you're competing with lots of other nonprofits and everybody has a great story, really, you know, as a rule, it's not, you know. Right. Yeah. It has to be part of your budget. Yeah. Really does. (laughs) Yeah. Lots of little pots. Yeah. We have an endowment, but it's not enough to cover the the amount of staff and the building and stuff like that. So. uh, Right. It's, and that's, that's one of the nicest things that I shifted um, in, in 2012 to bring in somebody to do, more of the uh, CEO work and I was doing more of the artistic and kind of the back half work. And then that, then we hired an ED finally three or four years after that. And so I'm, you know, I have the benefit of, you know, being the face of the place and being able to work out of here or, you know, do the back stuff, which I love and don't have to do all the paperwork and, you know, the, 
day-to-day stuff that's so hard, you know, that is, it's the, it's the business and it's the stuff that has to be done as well. You know, I know you know that from having to do both sides. Of yeah. That. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're not, you're not a nonprofit. Yet. <laughs> I'm not a nonprofit, but I'm not running a whole organization either. It's just me and what I want to do. Right. Um, but um, well, so congratulations on, I love the title papermaker emeritus. Who, yes. came, who came up with that? <laughs> oh, well, we just were kind of like, what do you call this, you know, this uh-huh. position because they still want me around and, you know, they still want me to be the face of the place, still be, you know, until we can train the right person to go out to shows, you know, to work with that person. And, you know, as shows come back up like Codex and Southern Graphics, things like that. Right. Um, so somehow we just said, well, it's like an emeritus status, you know, mm-hmm. so kind of what they ultimately went on. So, um, and they promised me a villa for six months in Italy, which I, you know, <laughs> yeah. I right away, you know. <laughs> so we'll see how that funding goes. Oh, but, cool. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And um, did you have a couple of recommendations for listeners? Yeah. I mean, I, I want to recommend one, one dear friend right now who I've worked with a lot, recently john sullivan in the bay area who was is uh runs uh, logo graphics uh, logos graphics yeah and he's building uh, he's totally gotten rid of his printmaking equipment practically and is doing all paper making both paper making as well as tool making for paper making and he's good friends with don farnsworth who is also out of Magnolia Editions, I think is, um, mm-hmm. I think that's the overhead. Of, of yeah, done. that's right. He's doing a lot of research in paper and, as well as tool making and um, watermarking. Um, I would recommend uh, Brian Queen up in Canada, who's you know of very well and is heavily involved in stuff. And David Reyna with tools. And I'd say, Get what you can from David, because David's not, you know, David's aging like all of us. So I'm not sure how long. But uh, and then people like Mae Babcock in Rhode Island, who I've worked with, uh, does paper stuff. Uh, all the institutions like uh, San Francisco Center for the Book Arts, Minnesota Center, Pyramid Atlantic, Dudenay. I'm sure I'm forgetting some. Uh, and then the colleges that, you know, have programs that I'd like. Uh, LSU and um, uh, uh, Alabama, Iowa, and uh, Savannah, and some of the other institutions like Rhode Island that offers some of it, you know, RISD offers some paper making and, you know, things like that. So those are some of the folks and people like yourself, I recommend all the time. So <laughs> that are been really, you know, dynamic in this, uh, in this field and, uh, humbled by what you've done uh, really for uh-huh. all years. So. Well, likewise. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll put links to uh, most of these places you just rattled off. Uh, <laughs> lots of paper making resources. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, Tom. And, and where, hand paper making magazine. Yeah. And where can we find you online, both the Morgan and your own personal yeah, website, even you type in either Tom Balbo Galleries, plural.com, or even balbogalleries.com, what should come up with a website, which which needs work, but that's it's it's one of the harder things. So. And then the Morgan, it's Morgan Conservatory? Org, just morganconservatory.org. Well, it's been really fun talking to you, Tom. Thanks so much for sharing your story. Enjoy Colorado. (laughs) Take care. Okay, thanks. Bye. Hey, paper friends. Did you know that I write a weekly blog called The Sunday Paper featuring stories of people doing exciting, innovative, and beautiful things with paper? Sign up at helenhebertstudio.com slash blog. I'm also creating a lot of content over here, and the best way to stay up to date is to join my newsletter list to learn about free tutorials, online classes, workshops, and the annual Redcliffe Paper Retreat, which takes place right here at Helen Hebert's studio. You can find out more at helenhebertstudio.com. This wraps up our episode, and if you enjoyed the show, 
I'd appreciate it if you could leave a review over on iTunes. This helps others find out about the podcast. Special thanks to Gary A. Hansen for the sound editing and Peter Thomas for the music. Visit HelenHebertStudio.com and click on Podcast, where you can find out more about these guys, subscribe to this series via iTunes, and listen to other episodes and access all of the archived shows. Talk to you soon. Besides the season, the main contain-